Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's a very big chord in the in, in Three Lines. Three Lines is a song about hope against experience and rationality. But I am totally prepared to accept that that is also a Jewish thing. Hello, you're listening to Politics on the Couch. I'm Raphael Baer. And this episode, well, this one put me on the couch a little bit more than I had anticipated, if I'm honest. We've talked a bit about political identity on the podcast before and psychology. I mean, that is the point of the podcast, to talk about politics and psychology. And we felt it was time to drill a bit deeper into the place where identity and politics collide. Now, one way to do that is a bit of self-reflection. I'm not exactly going to call it therapy, uh, but using me as an example, looking at my own cultural identity. And we found the perfect guest to help with that in David Baddiel. I've enjoyed David's work as a comedian and author for years. He's written plays, movies, books, a musical even. He's presented documentaries, podcasts. Look, I don't need to run through David Baddiel's CV. He's David Baddiel. He co-wrote Three Lines. But for our purposes on the couch, it's also relevant that he is Jewish. And that's been a really prominent feature in his work. It's something that's always intrigued me. I'm also Jewish, and until a few years ago, it wasn't something I felt was particularly pertinent to what I do. And then anti-Semitism, Jewishness, and the Labour Party became this huge live issue in British politics. It was a big issue for David Baddiel too, and his response has been to write a book about it. It's called Jews Don't Count, and it addresses this issue on the left, or the progressive side of politics, whatever you want to call it, uh, the difficulty it has sometimes in processing anti-Semitism as a form of racism. It's not a very long book, and it's got a sense of humour, as you'd expect, but it makes a really important argument that I'll try to summarise a bit up front in my introduction, uh, because it's kind of more efficient that way. It means we get straight to the meat of the conversation. Is that kosher meat? Okay, like everything else with this podcast, it's complicated. First, I should say that we don't manage to cover everything and a lot of the issues we end up talking about are difficult and we just glance on them and they are handled in more depth and I should say probably with more subtlety in the book. So do go and read it. Also, I should say there is swearing. Uh, Not huge volleys of effing and blinding, but a, a fair smattering of effing at least. We try to keep this as a family podcast, but this episode is probably 15 rated because of the language. Oh, and sorry to any Coldplay fans listening, we got the release date of their first album wrong. That's kind of beside the point. So what is the point? Okay, David's point in the book is that there is a blind spot, a double standard on the political left. That means a lot of the imperatives of anti-racism, 
well, they get a bit looser around anti-Semitism. The kind of cultural policing of prejudice, the calling out of expressions of hatred or just hostility towards minorities, that rigour and moral certainty, somehow doesn't get applied the same way when the minority in question is Jews. There's something about anti-Semitism that means it gets handled on the left almost with a kind of scepticism or suspicion, as if, well, as if in some way it isn't a proper racism, as if when Jewish people perceive hostility towards them or feel themselves the target of stereotypes, the usual zero-tolerance attitude of the left becomes, well, let's say the dial isn't all the way at zero. It's the racism that doesn't count. Because, okay, well, because that's kind of where we begin. Now, we started by talking about the complexity of whether Jews count as white or not. We talk about how there is a curious duality that means the whiteness of Jews can change depending on different agendas of prejudice on the political spectrum. Now, if you're on the far right, they, I mean we, uh, are very much a non-white ethnicity, and needless to say, not a very popular one. But on the far left, Jewishness has become synonymous with wealth and privilege, so the essence of a certain left political idea of whiteness. It's a phenomenon that David describes well in the book, and that has led to Jews sometimes being called, in a tribute to the most famous Is It Isn't It cat from Quantum Mechanics, Schrodinger's Whites. And that is not my conceit, even though I talk about it. Uh, I don't know who came up with it first. I've seen it on the internet. I try and make this clear in the book. I The phrase I use, which is my phrase, means the same thing. It's the flickering whiteness of Jews. We should explain, which is this sense that, you know, if, you, if you're approaching this from the far right, then the Jews are this insidious race of non-Aryans who are doing all sorts of nefarious things, trying to swamp the, the, the white land, white Christian lands. With... I mean, and specifically not white. I mean, it's com- that itself is complicated because... You know, I didn't understand what the Jews will not replace us meant when I first heard it chanted at Charlottesville and made jokes about it. But I now understand that it's part of this sort of conspiracy theory called the Great Replacement, whereby Jews are controlling immigration and multiculturalism in order in order to undermine the white races. And that puts Jews themselves in a weird position as regards who do the white races exactly think we are? We're bringing in all these brown and black people to undermine them. But what are we specifically? And all you could say is definitely non-white. Yeah. On the left, you have the view that Jews, they are necessarily white because they're ex- they're part of a European white privilege. And you know, we'll try not to talk too much about Israel, but you know, through Israel and Zionism, part of the imperial colonial project, mm. and therefore the absolute ideological embodiment of power and privilege and Jewish money and all these other constructs that go into it mm. uh, and therefore not an ethnic minority not part of the BME of yeah and so suddenly yeah that's the duality that, that you talk about really yeah. well in I the mean, book. I mean and also just very simply you just see it all the time uh you know for if someone is criticized now for whatever uh fault they may have uh, done particularly if it's a fault that uh, progressive people feel is they need to be called out for the number one thing that will be said about them is that they are white there's normally you know this is a white man's perspective and by the way that's absolutely right uh, a lot of the time there is enormous white privilege and being white does give you a position of power that a lot of white people are not aware of and i completely agree with that but you just see it all the time that there is no accommodation made for jews within that and I personally feel, and this is a very complicated thing to say, I mean, I've taken issue that even when terrible people at Harvey Weinstein, you know, these powerful white men, I want to say, well, they're Jews. That that gives that makes them a slightly different category. I'm sure you, you're familiar with that horrible fizzing anxiety, which is all simultaneously thinking, 
you know, on a hair trigger thinking, is their Jewishness somehow going to be mobilized in this situation? Is there going to be some extra well, layer of anti-Semitism that I'm going mm. to have to, that is going to suddenly make me ambivalent about the reporting of these absolutely monstrous, appalling people? And I don't want to feel that ambivalence. I just want to hate them for all the reasons they're hateful people. Absolutely. I mean, that's very complicated for us as Jews. There's a brilliant comedy routine by Larry David at the start of the uh, whole Me Too Weinstein thing in which he just addresses head on uh, and says, you know, oh, quite a lot of these people seem to be Jews. It's, I think it's hilarious. It also involves something else which we could come to maybe later, which imagines being at Auschwitz and trying to chat up a woman. I mean, again, it's so complicated because, you know, it feels like so extreme. And yet I know it isn't. It's actually the opposite. It's humanising Jewish anxiety. Uh, And there is a a spectrum, isn't there, that has maybe at one end a kind of knowing self-referential Jewish self-consciousness, which is a kind of affectionate self-mocking, or as you say, a defense mechanism that among Jews is happy to joke about some of the most painful aspects of our history. And then right at the other end, there are the the grotesque caricatures, the, the hook-nosed, cigar-chomping capitalist, the really over-racialized images, the Shylock and the Fagin legacy. And then there's this more kind of subliminal middle level, which is a drip-drip of insinuation the way some businessmen or lawyers are represented in films and movies. And it can be hard to say that there was active racist intent, but to Jewish eyes and to Jewish sensibility, that has a really well-developed radar over many years, over centuries probably, for this stuff. It definitely has an anti-Semitic slant. Yeah, well, I talk about that as being, that's what I mean by a much older, more subtle problem, that with that mural, for example, which was done by someone who would very much think of themselves as a progressive, Mir One is a street artist and very, very... Yeah, so I just said this is the mural that Jeremy Corbyn famously said, I don't understand the problem with that, although it yeah. had obviously Jewish caricatures yeah. Um, yeah. playing Monopoly on the backs of the oppressed working classes, That's which right. is a but classic anti My point about that was that Mir One is operating from a very old aesthetic. You know, he's trying to show essentially evil, working its terrible evil and oppressing people, and the imagery of evil, the human imagery, the way you imagine evil human beings in our culture, I'm afraid, tends to be swarthy, big-nosed, often bearded, counting money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't think Mere One consciously is taking part in that aesthetic. He just can't not take part in it because he wants to show how evil capitalist oppression is. And then evil is imagined like that. That just happens. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I can't speak for the answer of that mural. I'm not going to. But in that, actually, that section of the book, and this will probably surprise a lot of people listening to this if they followed you on Twitter or engaged in this. I actually almost thought you were quite generous to Jeremy Corbyn in the sense that you described it as this complete unawareness or this blind spot almost. And actually, someone who approaches these things, and now not necessarily speaking about Jeremy Corbyn, but lots of people you know, who come at politics from that angle, they are so steeped in an idea of anti-imperialism and an ideological construct that has put Israel and Zionism as the main cog that turns the wheel, that if you get out of bed every morning thinking the most evil political apparatus in the world is basically the government of Israel and the Zionist project, mm. I think it's psychologically pretty hard for not to that for that not to spill over the edges a bit and turn into basically anti-Semitism. I think that's quite a difficult boundary to actually police in anyone's head. Well, that's probably true. Although the book is 
you know, sh well, it's certainly short about Israel because of my own position of being what I call a non-Zionist, uh, which is like, I think it is racist to uh, imagine that as a Jew, I have to have a strong position on that country either way. Um, but like yesterday, Keir Starmer um, put on Twitter just a general, very, very kind of boilerplate, to be honest, but perfectly okay, uh, thing about Holocaust Memorial Day and about, you know, we should never forget the six million murdered. And, you know, I mean, so many of the responses were about Israel. And uh, and so then you sort of think like, okay, he's mentioned the Holocaust, he's talked about the death of Jews and, or, and the reflex responses about Israel. But to go back to your point, which is about, um, you know, the blind spot, I actually still probably believe that. Uh, I know lots of Jews don't, but I think I think it's more important to understand what I call the absence, the, this this progressive anti-Semitism as an absence, as a passive, as a thing that is is uh, not a, in their own minds an active fixing of Jews in their sights in the way that far right and Nazi people would do. It's uh, it's a sort of unconscious most of the time relegation of of Jewish concern lower on the hierarchy of things in Jeremy Corbyn's case, certainly lower than, say, anti-imperialism, you know, uh, and anti-capitalism, lower than that. It's just not as much of a concern for him. Uh, and if he sees an anti-capitalist statement like like that mural, that's what he reacts to. Like, brilliant, it's an anti-capitalist statement. And it just won't occur to him, actually, maybe there's a problem with it to do with Jews. There's also another element to this, which you describe very well in the book, which is how sort of being against anti-Semitism as a result of that construct that we've talked about becomes the way the right are seen to be anti-racist. So it becomes sort of yeah. the conservatives' anti-racism and therefore not something that the left either needs to or wants to engage with. And I yeah. remember sitting in the House of Commons in the press gallery where Tory MPs would accuse Jeremy Corbyn of anti-Semitism and say he was an awful hypocrite yeah. and just sitting there in the press gallery thinking, oh, you're not helping. Yeah. I know you think yeah. this is a good point for you to score, but please stop it. It's not helping. It's a pro that's a big problem, I think. Um, I mean, I speak in the book as a progressive Jew um, and uh, the politicization of anti-Semitism, which is really what's happened, certainly in Britain over the last, I mean, it's always a political thing, but over the last sort of five, six years, means that that's the first place that really non-Jews who are politically active go. So, you know, when Corbyn was suspended uh, after his reaction to the EHRC report, lots and lots of people were saying, well, this is clearly an attack on the left. And what I think is, oh, that's interesting, you've reflexively gone to its political consequences and now no one is even talking about how Jews might feel about all this, how Jews are, how this is actually about racism towards a minority group and we haven't even processed it as Jews and next thing we know, no, well, obviously it's an attack on the left. That's a fantastically right? important point in the sense that it was, and, this, and the accusation was always that it was being weaponized. Now, when... Yeah. When, when people on the far right do that, it's called playing the race card. That's the rhetorical device. Say, oh, you're just playing the race card. And then suddenly to hear that equivalent, that symmetrical argument brought by the left or on the left was, was very interesting. And, and one of the points you make is that on the left, on the progressive left, under nearly all circumstances, racism, the offence, is sort of in the eye of the offended, in the eye of the beholder. Mm. And if people of color or any other minority says no look that really that sets me off that hurts then the left recognizes the obligation to listen except in anti-semitism where you know jews can say you know what i'm actually finding this quite upsetting and non-jews will say no you're not you're just pretending yeah. to score a yeah. point against us yeah well they can say that i mean it goes there's a spectrum from you're just pretending because you're a zionist shill 
uh, you're just pretending because you're a Tory, or oh, you don't quite understand, do you? You don't quite understand. You don't understand how other minorities have it worse. You don't understand uh, the wider picture, uh, and that happened a lot. I mean, I think I think during the last election, I think what Jews had to witness an awful lot was, uh, you know, and I'm not talking now about the hard left who would see any accusation, I'm not talking about the canary, who would see any accusation of anti-Semitism as clearly Zionist motivated or whatever. I'm talking about a lot of friends of mine uh, and people that I like and respect or whatever, basically saying, uh, look, vote for Jeremy Corbyn. He's not as bad as the alternative. And, you know, I would agree with that in loads and loads of ways. Uh, but it includes this weird caveat of like, it's not that important, is it? Yeah. The anti-Semitism thing? It's not, you know. Or, it... or worse, there's this sense, I agree. And, and uh, you know, I encountered this in a lot of Labour MPs, uh, you know, who I liked and was sympathetic towards and spoke to a lot. Uh, and in a way, I felt for their immense kind of the cognitive dissonance they were having to deal with because... It reached a point by 2019 where if you absolutely wanted nothing more than to stop Brexit or to get a referendum at least or to just punish the Tories, by the time of that election in 2019, you'd reached a point where the price of that just included accepting a certain amount of anti-Semitism. There was no way of getting away from that. If you're honest with yourself, you're saying, this is the product I want. That's the bus I want to get onto. And I'm going to have to sit on that bus knowing that some of the passengers in that bus are anti-Semites and I'll just have to deal with that. And that's not a nice thing to have to deal with, but they did. The thing about weaponization is that, and again, this is to do with the complexity uh, that I talked about and the nuances in the book, is there's no question the right weaponized anti-Semitism. So I've got a question about it, and I talk about this particular moment where Matt Hancock is doing a, is, do, is going very badly for him at some talk he's giving about the NHS, uh, and there's lots of left-wing people there. It's going really badly, and he just brings up anti-Semitism, uh, and they go crazy. They go mad. And I, and I say on Twitter, and I talk about it more in depth in the book, look, I know this is him being a twat. I know this is him playing it as a card. I still feel terrified as a Jew to hear a mob shouting down someone who's brought up anti-Semitism because it's complicated. And and as a Jew, you very deeply feel a mob shouting when someone has brought up the idea of protecting Jews. <laughs> now, it, it, exactly. And at this moment, I, I did want to just carve out a couple of minutes, though, on, on Israel, just because it's a rabbit hole and I don't want to go too far down it. But I think it's Jews more than non-Jews reading the book thinking, I'm so glad someone has just said this and articulated it as, as kind of firmly and clearly and rationally as David Badil has done. And I think a lot of them will then part company with you on the Israel point. And I don't want to argue the rights and wrongs of that, but I am interested because you talked about, and we've talked about how how recent and pungent and emotionally powerful, you know, the, the Holocaust and the Second World War is. And I think for a lot of Jews, no matter, you know, they're absolutely ready, liberal, progressive to despise the government and Netanyahu, but the notional existence of a country that in the 1939 repetition scenario will always have you and you can always go to it. That is something that is a part of the emotional, psychological safety net of Jewish identity that I'm actually a little bit surprised that you don't have as a component of your Jewish identity. Well, I probably do somewhere. It's quite buried because I think of myself totally as a British Jew. Um, British American Jew. I, in fact, you may be interested to know that I've written an article for the Sunday Times. This isn't quite relevant to what you're saying, but I'll tell you anyway. Uh, in which I wanted to come up with some new examples that are in the book, and one of them was I was doing this thing for BAFTA, 
uh, just trying to vote for BAFTA, and it puts you now, you now, because of an, ident- uh, an identity-driven agenda, uh, it puts you through to a census thing before you can vote. Uh, and one of those things is ethnicity. And there are very, I mean, really a lot of different ethnicities for uh, black groups and for, for Asian groups and, and there's Arab and all sorts of things. And Jews are in the any other box. And I wanted to put British Jewish because I feel that is my ethnicity. In the same way, you can put British Asian and stuff down there, but it's not there. It is there later on under religion. And that's part of my big problem with all this is that people still think of Jewishness primarily as a religion. And it's not. I mean, not that it isn't a religion, but that's not important. And it's not relevant to racism. And actually, most Jews are secular anyway. So anyway, I feel that British Jewish, I don't I don't feel connected to Israel, really, uh, in any way. I also think that this is how I feel in the argument about racism. I I didn't put this in the book as well. It's very like the reason that I talk about in the book about stupid fucking Israel is partly why the paragraph is so the, the chapter is pretty short about Israel. Um, and the chapter is pretty short. And the reason that I say I call Israel stupid fucking Israel online, and indeed I refer to it in the book, is not because I necessarily think that badly of Israel, but because I can't bear the endless discussion that you have to get into the minute that country is brought up that's what i really mean is the stupid fucking baggage that surrounds trying to say anything particularly anything about anti-semitism right i'm not saying obviously obviously it does loom very large within this conversation but i'm kind of saying it shouldn't it shouldn't it's racist to to always bring israel in when you talk about anti-semitism and it's racist to imagine that jews have a deep connection to Israel, I think. Not that they can't have, but it's racist to imagine that they always do, uh, in the same way that it's racist to imagine that a Muslim would have a deep connection to Saudi Arabia or whatever. Um, And so therefore, I am dismissive of it in the book, because I think intellectually it's not useful in the conversation about anti-Semitism to to have Israel looming very large all the time. Yeah, and and the way in particular in that most fraught period in the last few years where, as it were, to get onto the bus with the, the great, happy, clappy, progressive movement. It wasn't that Jews weren't allowed on the bus, but there was definitely a strong sense that you had to really broadcast your anti-Israel credentials as a Jew yeah, in order well, to that's... be allowed on the bus. And I think that that really dug a, into under a lot of people's skin yeah. at that I time. Mean, you know, it's also the case, obviously, there is a lot of uh, overlap between uh you know, you, you see it all the time. People do use the word Zionist when they mean Jew, and that's obviously anti-Semitic. We should probably back out of the Israel rabbit hole at this point for the reasons that you you say. It does have a way of consuming these conversations that is basically unproductive. Uh, and re- anyway, the reality is that a lot of the anti-Semitism that was flying around on the far right, on the far left, uh, the stuff that was sent as abuse to Labour MPs, um, that wasn't even camouflaged in Middle Eastern politics. I mean, it was, it was vintage racism stuff, 1930s level propaganda about Jews and greed and money and secret puppet masters controlling the world. But I suppose we were talking about this a moment ago, uh, about how much of that stuff is actually seeded into European and British culture, uh, so much of it that, that it, it comes out in all sorts of complex ways. And a lot of it is actually buried or really dilute in the mainstream and, and emerges as little offhand jokes or illusions that people use some of the time not knowing or not thinking of them as even racist. Um, and that actually thrives because there is another tradition of uh, on the Jewish side of, of patiently 
putting up with it because it's kind of the wallpaper of British society. And for the most part, Jews are left alone to be Jews. Uh, so is it really worth picking up on on every time? You know, why fight every battle? Uh, in fact, th there's a story you tell in the book about this, about Giles Corran in a cafe with friends. And then they're talking about the Oive Cafe. It's an actual review. I should say, that Giles was doing. It wasn't just with friends. By the way, Giles has read it, liked the book, and then in a kind of slightly macho way, uh, suggested that he wasn't as timid as all that. So I should probably say that. Uh, but yes, I'll just tell the story. It's a review. He's a restaurant reviewer and he uh, begins the review. And I think I'm right that the review is neurotic uh, in the way it starts. Uh, it says that he's at the Ivy Cafe in St. John's Wood. St. John's Wood, for anyone who doesn't know, is a fairly Jewish, fairly wealthy area in London. Uh, and he says for the third time, uh, some of his foodie mates who he's having lunch with uh, uh, have leant over, I mean, not third time that lunchtime, but third time when discussing this restaurant over the last couple of months and said, you know what they call this, the Oive Cafe. And my point is that Giles then frets in the review uh, about should I say something? Should I mention I'm Jewish? Uh, should I say maybe that's racist or whatever? Uh, and as far as I can make out, he didn't, although, you know, he's still raising it in his piece, but he didn't. And I just tweeted in response to a bit that I quoted, screenshotted of the review, you should have said, fuck off, you racist fuckwick, fuckwits. The time for Jews accepting this kind of stuff and just, you know, laughing it off is over, meaning it's time for us to join hands with other minorities who refuse to accept these kind of microaggressions and not be, you know, I, I think I say a, a, as well in the book somewhere that the someone once said to me that the headline in the Jewish Chronicle uh, is always, they hate us. And I said, no, 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 it's they hate us and let's not make a fuss about it. Yeah, it's... Because I, I, there's this terrible British Jewish reserve about anti-Semitism. And that's, I guess, what my book is saying. The time for that reserve is over. And it's interesting. There is a, definitely a difference there in terms of British Jewish culture and American Jewish culture. And I wonder whether in the last few years, and again, just extrapolating from my own experience because of what we've seen in the Labour Party, there is a little bit more of that American approach coming into the British Jewishness, that sense of, you know what, I'm done with it now. You know, just these tiny little things that we now do have a word for, thanks to the, the left, which is microaggressions. And you think, actually, I'm going to I'm going to have I'm going to start mm. the scene. I'm going to actually call it out because it's not cool. And I think that's yeah. changed. Yeah, I agree. I think it has changed. And I think the Labour Party is part of it. Hashtag enough is enough and all that stuff. I mean, social media in general is part of it because social media has created a world in which microaggressions are constantly picked up, uh, constantly challenged, called out, amplified. Uh, whatever, uh, as you'll know, that leads to another issue, which is that microaggressions against Jews and the calling out of them are sometimes questioned much more um, aggressively or nitpickingly uh, by progressives. Uh, not always, but a lot of the time. But yes, I am sort of weirdly unburdened by shame. I have no shame genetically as an emotion. A lot of my shows are shameless. They just talk endlessly about stuff that a lot of people would not want to talk about in my life. And I have come across and do still come across lots of examples of what I would consider to be Jewish shame, which is different in America, uh, but certainly exists here and exists in Europe. I mean, I don't really want to be negative about him, but one thing I'd mentioned in the book is how uh, Friday Night Dinner, which is a great show, I talk a lot about how Jews are not part of this thing whereby only Jews can play non can play only Jews are allowed to play Jews uh, in the way that casting tends to run along the lines for other minorities. And I mentioned how Friday Night Dinner, the Channel 4 sitcom, 
no, no one in the main family is Jewish uh, who actually plays those parts, apart from Tom Rosenthal, who has actually disavowed his Jewish heritage. You know, he did an interview. He said, yeah, I, you know, it goes, a, it's a few centuries, few antecedents back, and I, I don't feel myself to be Jewish. And I kind of think, like, why not? You know, what's actually, I might be wrong, and this might be unfair to Tom, but what shame is it that you would feel in owning it, is my question. Yeah, I maybe have some insight into that. I mean, I can't speak for him or, or any individual, but there is definitely a tradition or a history of people really not wanting to be defined by their Jewishness. I mean, it's not unusual. Uh, and there is definitely a phenomenon, I think, and it was part of the, the post-war experience for some refugees from Central Europe uh, who felt that being Jewish was just plain dangerous. It was just a magnet for misery and trouble. Uh, and it would condemn you and your children to, to difficulty. And you'd be better off completely assimilating, like blending the Jewishness all away uh, into the, the host culture that you'd arrived in. And there's also, I think, maybe a kind of modern iteration of that, which is people not wanting to inhabit uh, the very specific, neurotic, over-questioning, anxious Woody Allen-type figure image of, of Jewishness. Uh, maybe that's the idea that some people feel they want to escape from. I think that part of what's complex and entirely to be celebrated, actually, in a way, about Jews is their um, uncertainty and neurosis and complexity and ability to see the world, you know, in shades of complex greys and uh, including, you know, struggling against anti-Semitism or whatever. That is part of what the culture is. You know, when I sort of say in the book, uh, I think it's around about the time I'm talking about Israel, actually, would say Israel's not really anything to do with me, with being Jewish. Being Jewish is about, and I list sort of Larry David and Sarah Silverman and, you know, interesting, I don't list Woody Allen and, you know, that's a complex thing that I don't do because I certainly would have listed him a while back. Uh, but anyway, uh, I think that all of those people and other things that I mention in it are to some extent formed by anti-Semitism. There's no getting away from this, that Jewish culture, as I understand it, because as I understand it, it's very little to do with God, is about struggle and uh, survival and, you know, being oppressed and talking about that oppression. This is sort of how this book relates to that tradition, is rather than burying it and saying, oh, it doesn't really happen, and yes, we're fine, and whatever. No, talking about it, because that's in a great Jewish tradition. What is Passover? Except uh, a big, long, three-hour meal about how we were nearly killed off and somehow survived. That's what Jewish tradition is. I've tried to explain Passover. If you try to explain it as a narrative... Uh, as a component of a faith, if you don't have that faith, it's quite nuts, actually, and pretty dark. Um, so it really has to, to make sense of it at all, you have to understand how it's been sort of iterated through you know, the centuries, and also how that then fed the blood libel and the idea that Jews made matzah from the blood of Christian babies and really, really crazy stuff, the original conspiracy theories, basically, of Western civilization yeah. are anti-Semitism. So, no, I think you're right. Yeah. You, you can't disaggregate these things. I also think in the discussion, I mean, you know, it's a really interesting point you make about passing it on to your children. And I would, you know, I, I do agree that it could be complicated, but I think there's a way of looking at it, you know, quite a lot of my shows in a different way are celebrations of damage. Like my, my show, which a lot of Jews like, but it wasn't specifically for Jews, my family, not the sitcom, was a celebration of the mad parenting that I've had. And I suppose that's a very uh, Jewish thing to do at some level. But um, in the discussion about anti-Semitism, 
just to come back to something I talked about, the religious thing isn't just a confusion. It's a way of downgrading anti-Semitism. So when I've talked about anti-Jewish racism, racism against Jews, what you get a lot, and this is probably more from the right than from progressives, but who knows, don't know who they all are, who are challenging me online. People will say, it's not racism, it's, you know, Jews. the last time I looked, Jewish was a religion or whatever. The key element of that is they're trying to downgrade uh, racism against Jews to the lesser crime of religious intolerance. And the thing that not even, that's not even a crime in a way in, on the progressive left because it's anti-clerical. It's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. It's not a crime. Uh, and the thing I always say is, yeah, I'm an atheist. The Gestapo would have shot me tomorrow. And yeah, in fact, they did kill my great uncle, who was an atheist. Um, and as everyone knows, you know, the Nazis did not stop to ask whether anyone at kosher or had been to synagogue recently. It's a blood thing. It's a blood thing for the racists. I mean, to some extent, the book is about this. Sometimes people say, oh, why why should we listen to what the racists think? You know, why are you basing your worldview on what Nazis think? Because you have to. Because you have to, because that's what the discourse of anti-racism is. If there's no racism, there would be no books like this. There would be no need for, you know, the progressive discourse about it. So you have to listen to what they think. And the racists think that Jews are a race that need to be discriminated against. Yeah, that's very persuasive because I have to admit, for a long time, I didn't like the idea of referring to anti-Semitism as anti-Jewish racism because sort of for the same reason, but flipped on its head, I thought, well, that's not really describing adequately the full complexity of what Jewish culture and Jewish identity are. And it's reaching back to a kind of 19th century you know, kind of Wagnerian idea of the Jews who can never assimilate because actually they're a sneaky kind of race that look a bit like us, but actually aren't. And I'm not sure I necessarily want to actually legitimise that idea of what a Jew is by calling it racism. But I'm I'm quite persuaded by your... Well, see, I don't agree that you're legitimising it by saying this is the actual discourse that we're supposed to be fighting, we the anti-racists. This is the discourse that we're fighting. That they that they say that Jews are not a not part of the white races. That they're Asiatic. That they're blah blah blah. Uh, it's a racist discourse against us. Now we're not legitimising it by saying that's the one you have to take on board when you, the anti-racists, say we're going to fight racism, just like all other race racisms. You have to listen, not own, not legitimise. So you have to listen to what the racists are saying so that you combat it correctly. That's my point. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the things uh, that that, I, that struck me, actually, not from the, the book, but from the sort of wider things you've written and said about your family background you touch on, but, you know, I'd like to ask a bit more about is where class becomes a question of these complex identity issues. Just because I saw the other day, I think it was Linda Grant, the, the novelist, um, you know, making a point about how difficult it is for Jews to understand their place in a class hierarchy and a class system. And I'm sure this is actually common to a lot of migrant experience that the aspirations get ahead, you, to, you know, to be, make sure your children become either doctors or lawyers and then they go to university and they, they sort of socially climb. That puts you somewhere on a class spectrum, mm. uh, but actually not the one that the, you know, either the Marxist analysis or most people's cultural understanding of class really has a place for. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a weird name drop, but the one time I met George Michael, who was a really lovely bloke, one time I met him, um, we talked about this because uh, he had recently, for some reason, in some nasty piece about him, been called middle class. Uh, and I got called that a lot when I first appeared because I had glasses and, you know, uh, was from, had gone to Cambridge. Uh, and he said, but I see myself as Greek. 
Uh, and I said, yeah, that's right. If you're from an ethnic minority, you primarily don't identify in terms of class, you identify in terms of ethnicity. Uh, and I would say that's true for most ethnic minorities. Uh, I mean, for me, it's kind of complicated in, sort of ways in that I came, my, my grandparents on my mother's side, the ones who were actually Holocaust survivors, mm-hmm. they were very, very, very wealthy in Germany. They owned a brick factory. They were kind of semi-aristocratic as far as Jews could be. They had servants and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and their wedding was a big society wedding. Then they lost everything, obviously, and most of their family were murdered. And they lived in one room uh, in Cambridge with my mother for about 20 years before they got a pension from Germany. Uh, my grandfather was in and out of mental hospital. They had no money or whatever. Uh, and my dad is working class. He's Welsh and working class, and he goes back to the 19th century where there were pogroms that brought Lithuanians to to this country. I mean, once you're talking about that, it's a, it's such a mess in terms of class. You can't position it in the in the easy way that some Marxist analysis would like to, because it's so fluid and weird, you know. Um, so, and yet it's very hard to understand, or, or, or I say for outsiders. Uh, British culture and English culture and society is most enigmatic because we all who've grown up in it have this extraordinary radar to identify little micro doses of different class status in almost any interaction. And you know, certainly speaking to you know friends who have moved to Britain as adults, they find it completely mystifying. Hmm. Well, one thing I do say in the book, I do say at one point, fuck off about money. And that's sort of general point, really, about sort of irritation and that energy you're talking about, about how often it still comes up around Jews. You know, so how often people have to mention Jews and money. But there's also a sort of political thing, which some some left-wing people won't agree with. But I think there's no, because of my own experience, my own history, it, it's the truth that money at the end doesn't protect you from racism, that racism is a more powerful force, really, than money. Uh, and I say that's not a very sort of, you know, Marxist analysis, which would put economics ahead of everything. But I think the mass genocidal psychology that leads to ethnic cleansing will overcome people, rich and poor, um, and certainly did happen to Jews in Germany. Um, so I see it all the time. I see it all the time that, you know, people want to classify me or whoever, in terms of class. But I feel probably I was from a lower middle class background. I mean, my, you know, sorry, just let me say something else, which is I did Who Do You Think You Are, right? Uh, On the first series, I was the Jew in the first series of that. Uh, They always have a Jew in that. They always want a bit of Nazi uh, history in that. Uh, And I wrote a novel about this, but it's based on a real thing, which is that my grandfather from Germany was interned on the Isle of Man, uh, as were all Jewish-German refugees, or a lot of them, uh, during the Second World War, due to all sorts of complex, mainly anti-Semitic things involving the the British government playing down the Holocaust and British people not understanding why there were German refugees in this country and blah, blah, blah. Uh, And so anyway, I was trying, I'd been to the rubble of my grandfather's brick factory in Königsberg already. That was, I mean, horrible at the arse end of the old Soviet Union in a place called Kaliningrad. There's this odd field at the edge of town where you can still see the rubble of my grandparents' brick factory. And it's also got lots of, sort of syringes lying about. It's really <laughs> grim, right? And then I'm on the Isle of Man and they're trying to trace the uh, building, the B&B uh, behind barbed wire that my grandfather might have been in. And they think it's this disused 
Chinese restaurant, which I go into and is just full of sort of noodles on the floor <laughs> and stuff. And I have a kind of breakdown where I say, who do you think you are? I hadn't been on yet. But I say, I sort of imagine Ian Hislop, who was another person doing it, is presently at some manor house in Dorset saying, oh, look, it's exactly the same as it was in 1704 when my great, great. And that's the point. I am from immigrant stock and I am from fleeing immigrant stock and so therefore everywhere I go with my history is rubble and that confuses anyone saying yeah you're middle class yeah because you carry a sense of exile which is always yeah. you know characterized as possession yeah and and yeah I I wrote a piece uh, recently where I described you know a friend saying at the height of the Corbyn horror stuff yeah that you know we've we found out who would have hidden us in the attic um, and it wasn't even a joke. And a lot of people, well, some people on Twitter, uh, were very upset by that line. They thought it was either too glib or, or making a joke about the Holocaust or inappropriate in some way. But actually, the reality is that is transmitted down the generations, that sense of needing to have a bag packed and the contingency of your identity, that your roots, however deep you send them down, there will always be someone coming along with a little angry trowel to dig them up and go, no, not you. Yeah. Well, you know what? They're not that deep, in me, certainly in me, you know, they're just straightforwardly. OK, so my grandparents were completely, uh, you know, their families completely destroyed and they had everything taken away from them. Just a small caveat. No reparations, by the way, proper reparations for that, because their brick factory is in Kaliningrad and Russia do not recognize reparations. Uh, but anyway, so none of that. Uh, as a result, my grandfather is in a mental hospital. In a, you know, he was also in Dachau before the war. You know, he had a terrible time. He's in a mental hospital. Uh, my mum is, you know, a very damaged woman. She's a brilliant woman, but very damaged or whatever. And there is no question that, you know, this terrible past lives on in me straightforwardly. Not like 500 years ago. It's my mother I'm talking about. She was born in Nazi Germany, you know, and smuggled here and then her, gra her dad was interned on the Isle of Man and then he was in a mental hospital because his family had been murdered and his entire livelihood had been destroyed. That, that doesn't go away. Actually, I'm loath to do this, but I'm going to say it anyway. That, that does slightly bring me back to why Israel plays such an important part in the consciousness of so many Jews. I mean, well, we used to spend family holidays in Israel because we had family there. Um, and But that's where I really encountered Holocaust survivors because there were just people living in the building that my grandmother lived in and you know, my family well, it's a long story, I won't go into it. But uh, and the only thing you knew as a child about these people is that they were the survivors and the hollowness in their eyes. I'm getting emotional now. It's okay. Gonna pull it together, Raf. It was there's a great line from Primo Levi where he says, you know, Primo Levi's his own survivor's guilt, where he says, the people who were able to talk about it and write about it didn't look into the abyss. Because the people who mm. properly looked into the face of the Gorgon yeah. came out silent or not at all. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, when they see that, that's what I saw in Israel. And, and I hadn't seen it anywhere else. It's true in my own family. You know, I, when I was 10, I said to my grandma, oh, did you have any other brothers and sisters? One of her brothers had got out. And she said, yes. And then she said, you'll have to ask Mr. Hitler what happened to him. And I remember at the time I was 10, thinking that's who they sing about on Dad's Army. Right. Uh, Mr. Hitler, right? And she wouldn't say anything else about it, about the death of her brother. And why, you know, of course she wouldn't, because that's too difficult a thing to talk about, it's too difficult a thing to tell a 10-year-old who only thinks about Dad's army. And you think that we remember, you know, you and I are all, you know, remember the, the mid-1970s. I just about remember the mid-1970s. That is as long ago now, same distance back, 
you're in the war. You know, it's really, it's recent. It's properly. No, I know. I, I've said this, but it's <laughs> it's a thing to do with getting older, which is uh, when I was born, which is 1964, uh, it was, I think, 19 years. I might be wrong. Is that right? Yeah, 19 years before the end of the war, you know, 1945. Uh, at the time, when I in the 70s, when I first started to understand the Holocaust or whatever, and my grandparents or whatever, I thought, oh, that's a long time ago, right? Now, 19 years ago, I was doing Badil and Skinner Unplanned, which feels to me like yesterday. You do it in terms of like the music that I make my children listen to and say, you have to listen to this. It's absolutely classic. It's a, you know, we're talking about identity here. This is part of who I am and you must understand this. You must learn to like the Beatles. That is basically like my parents saying, you should listen to this Scott Joplin record. It's an intentional, I mean, it's that it long ago, funny, relevant but, to them. But, but it does bring something home, which is, now I don't know if this is correct historically, but let's choose, choose something that sounds correct for 19 years ago, right? Which would be like 2002. All right, that's probably when Coldplay's first album came out. I don't know if it is or not, right? So that They're feels about, fairly yeah. recent, right? Where I was born, that's when the war ended, right? When Coldplay's first album came out, the same amount of time had elapsed uh, before at Nuremberg. Okay, that's pretty alarming, Which, which but yeah. does magnificently lead me on to, because I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, and I'm not going to let you go without talking about Three Lions, because, you know... Again, that's the mid-90s, 96. There's, there's, first of all, there's a serious identity point, which I'm itching to ask you about this, which is there's something for me, like many people, I, you know, I love that song and I can still get quite you know, emotional, get a visceral response to it because it captures that, that time and all the subsequent you know, emotional ups and downs that have gone accompanied every major tournament. But also the fact that it has that slightly self-deprecating negative inflection that, that oh you know we, we want it to be better but deep down we know it's not but we're not going to let go of the hope there's a part of me that thinks that's going back to what we were talking about earlier quite a jewish little cultural note you put it's a kind of a kletzmer chord a minor chord you've thrown in there yeah. maybe i'm reaching too far here and but well, you're not reaching too far in terms of your description of three lions uh which is without doubt that is the key to the lyrics of Three Lions. You know, I think the music, which was written by Ian Brody, is absolutely fantastic, and that's uh, a bigger key, probably. But certainly, in terms of it, the chime, the chord that it chimed with England fans, was me and Frank Skinner, and Frank's a Catholic, by the way, so, you know, this was written by a Catholic and a Jew, so neither of us are quite in the mainstream. Uh, we sat down and we just said, we want to write something that feels like it actually represents the real experience of England fans, which is not this time more than any other time, uh, or back home, we'll bring it home, or whatever it might be. We're not going to win. Uh, let's write a song about how we aren't going to win, but sort of in a magical thinking way, always think we might somehow. Uh, and that really is about being a football fan. Uh, and I think, you know, it's a very big chord in the in, in Three Lines. Three Lines is a song about hope against experience and rationality. But I am totally prepared to accept that that is also a Jewish thing. That you brought and you seeded a little bit of yeah. Jewish DNA into the England football well, fandom. You know what? A sort of, you know, I no, mean, it's, it's a not, ludicrous thing to say in a way, but also to me resonates a little bit as well. I, I think there's something very important, which, you know, some people will disagree with and will say, well, you're, that's what you would say. But I do think it's the case that three lions for a very brief moment allowed for a kind of English, if you like, patriotism that was qualified, was not nationalistic, was vulnerable and took pride in being English uh, because the lyrics are so self-deprecating 
that meant that people could wave the flag of St. George, the cross of St. George, and it not be, you know, fuck the Pope and the IRA, rule Britannia, triumphalist or whatever. It was a kind of rather qualified, rather sad, rather poignant Englishness. That's a fantastically important point because that moment, that 96 moment was absolutely, I came at a point and that tournament when the sort of the tide of George Crosses came in and it never quite went out again in the same way. And that the flag, it was very pivotal in terms of the sort of emblemology of Englishness becoming part of a cultural mainstream, tied up around with the you know, imminent arrival of, of new Labour government and something about that 90s moment, which did exactly what you described with Englishness. And now I feel hmm. has been lost. And I wonder how you feel about, do you now have some residual ambivalence about that? You know, the English, you know, are you British? Are you English? The drop down menu question. It's become more complex again. Yeah. Um, history is what it is. And stuff gets, you know, taken away. Uh, and there's no question that you're right, that uh, patriotic Englishness uh, has got often corrupted uh, and has led to a reemergence of nationalism and, Brexit and all the rest of it, that now, if you show those images of people waving crosses of St. George, might feel to someone who doesn't wasn't there, uh, like, oh my God, is that part of that? But I, no, I don't feel ambivalent about it. I feel proud and because I know what it was about. Uh, I know what it was about at the time. You can't foresee the future. And uh, I, you know, I know that it was about non-nationalistic, self-deprecating, rather poignant idea uh, of, of Englishness, which is not at all uh, what, uh, you know, the Brexit party is about. No, and I think it's very difficult for our generation in a way. I, I'm describing us as the same generation. I'm a little bit younger than you. Um, well, but... You don't have to make that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't look any younger than you, if that helps. Any consolation. Um, the, um, there was that time, you know, you know, to be in your sort of, 20s as I was early 30s don't know in, in I the, was early in the, 30s yeah yeah in that period it was a pretty good time and you know, the cold war had ended so there was peace everywhere and the economy was picking up and I think we got very complacent about how reaction and conservatism and all sorts of things that we'd sort of grown up to think of as sort of the cultural enemy if you're a liberal progressive minded person were just so thoroughly defeated yeah. that you could quite happily dance on their grave yeah. you know singing three lines no, that's basically true the end of history and all that and yeah no I, I think we thought people like you and me probably thought oh history is on a long march towards progress and here it is cold war's over and you know blah 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 and there is one thing apart from the economics of it which are obviously incredibly important that we didn't know about and that is technology again not that marxist to me because marxists would probably put the credit crunch and global capitalism above that but there is no question that although it has brought all sorts of greater democracies and it has led to some very important writings of social justice that wouldn't have happened otherwise, it has also created an unbelievable tendency for truth uh, to malform uh, and for bad ideas to spread and consolidate and for fringes to mobilise and have much louder abilities to spread their messages and populism. Populism, I believe, would not exist without social media. Uh, and we didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah, and, and the availability biases that, that kick in, the sense that people, you know, I, I, it's interesting, it's on a slightly different issue, but I had an interviewed many years ago a police officer about who was investigating paedophile rings, basically, online. And I, the question was, was this always there? 
and we just didn't know about it as much before the internet or has the internet actually made more of it? And the response was, well, a little bit both, but basically what happens is people who have a sort of ideation or a way of looking at the world then go online and think, oh, actually, it's not weird. Right. It's, quite, it's quite normal. Yeah. And then they find an identity group and say, actually, we're the good guys, yeah. uh, appallingly in that. But And this repeats itself all over the place. And I wonder, because coming back to the book, you do talk a lot about trolls and you're, you're saying you're going to write more about that. Um, we had a, an episode, the last episode of this podcast, we talked about this uh, and the troll armies and how they operate. And I wonder if you worry that when you when you take it on and you're arguing with these people online all you're doing is feeding the trolls basically yeah. you're just giving the, the, your reach gives them the platform they want and you're better off just literally switching it off um well so that's a changing uh dynamic that when it, when i first noticed that that was a thing that i would get abused on twitter by trolls uh my instant reaction was definitely not to ignore it because as a comedian i've said this before i thought well this is heckless this is people i don't know shouting and abusing me out of the, out of the dark and so i tended to do something which i think is a bit different from what most people think about in terms of feeding the trolls which is to sort of screenshot it and say something funny and sort of like not get angry not get outraged not get sort of upset but just try and make a joke out of it and i still think that is a uh, useful often thing to do my troll show is actually about many more things but i did that was the basis for my troll show i then actually started to wonder about it less in terms of feeding specific trolls but more in terms of like who are these people and how much are they organized uh state aided paid for you know not real sock and there are a lot of those uh i actually get the impression that twitter is not doing a bad job at the moment of dealing with them actually uh but i might be wrong about that but it's they seem to be slightly trying to get deal with them much more than they were. Um, and so I didn't like that just from an authenticity point of view. It's really complicated because I think it's not, it's, sometimes it's that, and sometimes it is a kind of mass psychology, spontaneous, weird thing going on on that site. And I think you need to find all sorts of complicated ways of dealing with it. And sometimes you're right, it's feeling the trolls, and sometimes maybe it's a good way of, de of doing it. I don't know. Right, we're running out of time. Last question, I think. Um... <laughs> Jewish identity has been a motif in your work. Uh, and then there is this parallel track, uh, which is your football fandom. Uh, and I'm kind of intrigued by the relationship, right? You're an atheist. So the Jewish attachment is completely cultural. It's also fused to your sense of self, I suppose. Uh, and for a lot of people, and maybe this sounds a bit glib, uh, but football fandom has that same kind of attachment. It's fused to the soul. It's it, basically kind of quasi-religious. Uh, is that how it is for you? I mean, I don't suppose being a Chelsea fan was transmitted down thousands of years in the same way as Jewishness. Well, I support Chelsea because they won the FA Cup in 1970 and I was six and watching it on the telly and my older brother got excited and I just did everything that my older brother did then, so I got excited and that was it. Uh, I also think there's a possible thing, I don't know if this is true or not, but that the, a lot of, I can't really think of a Jewish male, I guess. Uh, that's not sexist to me. It just probably is the, what comes to mind. A Jewish male who, certainly in my generation, who is not a football fan. Uh, and that might be something to do with belonging. That might be something to do with, you know, part of being in this culture, in England or Britain or whatever is to be a football fan. It feels very British and very, you know, part of this culture. Uh, and so that might be part of what's going on there. Uh, I 
to use an example about the sort of madness of identity and football fandom, I do talk in the book about something that I've talked about for many years, which is the uh, use of, we started off talking about it, but we didn't, I think it was recorded, uh, which is the use of the word yid as a hate word for, for Tottenham fans that I'd experienced that at Chelsea uh, and that uh, I eventually did a film and wrote about it. I did a film called The Y Word, trying to counter or to raise consciousness about um, you know the fact that this word is used not just by Tottenham fans, it's used all the time by Chelsea fans and by Arsenal fans and by West Ham fans as a hate word for Spurs fans, but it spills over all the time into straightforward anti-Semitism, into Auschwitz chants and into various other types of anti-Semitic abuse, abuse. And it actually began the Y word as an idea when a guy behind us changed fuck the years, fuck the fucking years that he was shouting to fuck the Jews, fuck the fucking Jews over and over again. My brother tried to take him on. My brother is not a hard bloke. Uh, and, you know, it was awful. And no steward did anything. And this is already sort of 2010 or whatever in a culture where stewards are supposed to have a zero tolerance for racism. You, you're racist, you get banned forever. No one did anything at all. Now, the reason I bring it up is it's not so bad now, but certainly when I first brought it up and first raised conscious about it, you got this incredibly bad reaction from Spurs fans. Not from all Spurs fans, but from a lot of them. Uh, this notion that they were being blamed for this and that this was part of their identity and that I didn't understand it and all the rest of it. And there was no sense at all. It, it, they were thinking, you're bringing this up as a Chelsea fan. And there was no sense at all. No, I'm bringing it up as a Jew. That's how I'm bringing it up. And actually, even though I am a fanatical football fan, I'm not very bothered about my identity as a Chelsea fan within this. What I'm bothered about is that when I'm at Chelsea as a Jew, I feel abused by people shouting yiddo, yiddo, and fuck the yids. And so that was interesting because it made me realise I am a fanatical football fan, but my identity as a Jew is stronger than my identity as a football fan. And it is phenomenally complicated because I first came across the concept of the yid army uh, because, first of all, it's interesting that we can say this word on this podcast. We would not be saying yeah. the P word or the N word. And you make this point in the book. It's very interesting. And, you know, that it's still... You tell the most extraordinary story of David Cameron coming up to you uh, in a green room one time saying, this Yid thing. Yeah. We're about to talk about it on The Agenda, which is a Tom Bradbury's show. Uh, and he, he comes up to me and says, uh, this Yid thing, are we going to talk about it? And if we are going to talk about the Yid thing, you're right, you're right about it. So he was trying to appease me <laughs> while constantly just saying the word, saying this hate word for Jews in, in, into my face. Oh, I mean, I, I think I fully understood this again from being in Eastern Europe where you know, the Russian word Yid uh, obviously the same derivation um, is used you know, very aggressively as a term of abuse uh, and it, 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 it's a much more pungent and, and common thing. But then I know a lot of, I was at school with lots and lots of Spurs fans, Jewish Spurs fans, and their ambivalence about this was that this was an opportunity they got to reclaim it with this passion and aggression, yeah. feel part of, you know, the Yid army was a good thing to be part of because mm. not only was, as you say, it's football, so it's belonging and it's completely assimilated in one level. You're in a big crowd, you feel safe and strong. It's exactly the kind of Jewish empowerment that mm. the sort of cliched Woody yeah, Allen neurotic image that we talked about before craved in some way well jewish empowerment is a really weird thing to say about a chant that is being chanted mainly by non-jews yes there are there are quite a few jewish spurs fans but that's part of the problem is that you know people say to me oh they're the spurs fans they should be allowed to say it's what they call themselves most of them are not jewish you know <laughs> even though and that's the racist thing it's like a few of them are jewish it's a slightly jewish area so chelsea fans and west ham fans and arsenal fans say yeah they're the yid team that's racist it's not true right 95 percent of people at a spurs home game will be non-jewish and the question is 
even if it is in its own way, which I, I could see that sort of like try to be benign in its own way at the beginning. Right now, the idea of a people who are not part of that minority, not actually part of that minority, chanting a hate word for that minority, you know, I it's it's just wouldn't be acceptable on part of any other minority. It clearly would not be acceptable. It's not a reclamation by Jews. And also, my very important point was, and also what does it lead to with other fans? What does it, you know, it, it, it perpetuates what you talked about in a way earlier when you talked about the internet is a normalisation of hate. In fact, someone someone said to me, one of the many troll, not trolls, well, just probably, this probably was a real person, said to me at one point when I was tweeting, when I was talking about it, some Spurs fan said, it's our word now. And I thought, it actually isn't because I can show you a picture of uh, Kristallnacht and someone writing the word Yid, or I can show you, uh, you know, Mosley and his black shirts writing the word Yid uh, over the East End. And that word remains, that history remains. It doesn't become suddenly, yeah, it just means Spurs fan. Yeah, and I think you put it very well. And, and, and a weapon, even if, it, you know, how it feels in one person's hand, it's still a weapon. And when it's carried by the majority and shaken in anger at the minority, there's only one power dynamic really going on there. And it's a pretty threatening one. Yeah. And also you have to take into account how things have changed, you know, which is an incredible emphasis, as we know, in football and racism uh, and great. And that was a simple example of Jews counting or not counting, which is, you know, there are probably nuances. There are probably nuances in the Y word, and I'm happy to hear them. But overall, you know, if there is a huge move against racism in football, then <laughs> me having to sit at Stamford Bridge and listen to some bloke shouting, fuck the Yids, fuck the fucking Jews, and nearly have a fight with my older brother, that's something that needs to be stopped. Right, we're definitely out of time now. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, and the book, I should say one more time, is really great. It's short, uh, which is a bonus. You can People can just whiz through it. It's punchy. Uh, but it gives expression to a lot of things that I think really needed saying. So thanks for that too. Thank you. Thank you, Gabriel. I really enjoyed it, actually. Raphael. My name is Raphael. Why, Gabriel? What, there's what there's three there? archangels. Oh, you called no. me Gabriel. That's a Jewish thing. Jesus Christ, I've got your name wrong. I think it's the associations. It's that Raphael and Gabriel feel to be like virtually the same name. Yeah, they are, because they're the two archangels. Yeah, the archangels. They, they are, you yeah. often see them depicted together in yeah. Renaissance art, and yeah. which is obviously what you're thinking of. Sorry, but can you also say thank you, Raphael, one time that we've yes, been so sorry. Tape? That's right. <laughs> yeah. so, so, David, thank you so Have much. I've been calling you Gabriel throughout. You did it once earlier, but did I think I? you got away with it. Yeah, you did mention <laughs> you did it. <laughs>